0: Well, I began our time uh, together in Genesis chapter 1 two weeks ago uh, with a really simple question. Do you, do you remember the question I asked you to answer? That simple question, how old is the earth? Uh, well, today I'm going to ask a much easier question. This is a softball for you today, but I think it will uh, get you thinking. So, so here you go. Here's the question that I want to begin with. And the question is this. Uh, Do you read the Bible literally? Just take a minute, think about your response, and then I'm going to ask you to to commit. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you agree with my statement. And and here's my statement. So keep your hand down. If you disagree, raise your hand if you agree. Here's my statement. Uh, We must read the Bible literally. If you agree, raise your hand. If you disagree, keep your hand down. You guys are so non-committal. Now, I have to be honest, it's a trick question. It's a terrible question. It's an unfair question to ask of you. Somewhere along the line, this word literal entered our vocabulary to describe how we read the Bible and it never should have happened. It should never have been a question. The word literal has become almost uh, meaningless in English It would be common to hear someone say, perhaps maybe if they had a sunburn, you might hear somebody say, I'm literally burnt to a crisp. But of course, that's the opposite of what literal means, right? That would be completely figurative. And so this is a tricky question. I'll give you one profound and and I think helpful example used by uh, the great John Lennox, uh, if you've ever had the chance to hear him speak, he, he, he's, he's Irish, and so he has this great Irish voice. He's, an, he's a mathematician, an ethicist, uh, uh, a theologian, uh, which all means he's way smarter than any of us. But John Lennox uh, gives an example of the, the trickiness of this word literal. Uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Do we read that literally? Of course not, right? Jesus isn't saying that he's an actual wooden or steel door. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. If we, if we want to read that accurately, if we want to read John ten nine accurately, we're obligated, we're required to read it figuratively. It's, it's this thing that we call a metaphor, right? Back to like 10th grade English class. We could accurately say that the only thing literal about John ten nine is that Jesus literally used a metaphor. It's the only thing that's literal there. Uh, but the problem is that many many have set up this sort of false dichotomy. What, what does that mean? We, we many have set up a literal reading of scripture as true, and a figurative or metaphorical reading as false or at the very least some sort of compromise and that just doesn't do practically when it comes to the scriptures that are full of imagery and metaphor. But, but as Lennox points out, metaphors are devices that stand for truth. They aren't literal, but they are real. They are true. Jesus is a real door into a real kingdom, but he's not a literal door into a kingdom. I, I share this because it, this is so important in our understanding uh, of Genesis. As we've talked about previously, Genesis, not just the first couple chapters of Genesis, but throughout, Genesis is going to present to us all sorts of imagery. The story of Genesis from start to finish is going is to scream out to us, see, this is, this is about Jesus. We're going to see it when when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. It's not really about Abraham sacrificing his son. Did it happen? Yeah. But it's imagery. It's about something even bigger. We're going to see that over and over and over again in Genesis. And it's important to understand how we read, how we understand, how we make sense of the Scriptures and do it faithfully and do it well and not just in a rigid, cold, historical, literal way, but with all of the imagery, all of the depth, all of the beauty that God has intended for his words. And so as I read our scripture text for today, the entirety of Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2, I want you to pay attention not just to the words in a flat historical sense, Again, we're not saying that, that it's not true. Absolutely, it's true. But I want you to hear the flow, the rhythm, the imagery, the, the fullness of what it is that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals to us in Genesis chapter 1. As I did two weeks ago, I usually have you stand. I'm going to allow you to stay seated because I know it's a, it's a long text. And so, uh, before I read, I will, as I do most every week, remind you that uh, this is God's Word to us, and His Word is true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. and let, there, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teams and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. All the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God, your word is true. You are the creator of all, you create with purpose, and your creation has value. As we consider your creative work, may you deepen our faith in you. Leave us resting in your finished work for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you weren't uh, with us two Sundays ago, I I broke down the creation account into... One major idea, two general observations, and nine clarifying statements. I'd encourage you, if you missed that week, go back and uh, check out that sermon. My goal was not necessarily to tell you how to think about and understand the creation account, but to provide a guide, some framework uh, for helping you, for informing your thinking as you consider uh, God as creator and so as we begin today I want to bring us back to that one big idea that I shared and and remind you of that and that's that Genesis 1 teaches that God designed and created all that exists with purpose and order by his powerful word well today we're going to work through the account of creation and we'll discover uh, four things that God does in our text. And the first is this, God brings order and form to his creation. Verse 2, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the way that Moses lays out the order of creation for us, day one, which we'll talk about in just a minute, seems to begin with the earth already being in place to some degree. There are these two words that describe the status of the earth as God arrives at day one, and those two words are formless and empty. Other translations might use formless and void, something like that, a barren, watery place, incapable of supporting life. Now, it's important to recognize that there are all sorts of theological ideas, all sorts of really important themes that are being introduced right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Not just elements of creation specifically, but theological elements that are really important. I'll I'll give you uh, two examples. One, think of the significance of water to the story of redemption. Water is central, right? Whether it's the flood that we'll talk about uh, later on in Genesis or the Red Sea, or water flowing from the rock in the wilderness, or the Sea of Galilee, or the Jordan River, and most clearly the waters of baptism, you can't mistake, you can't miss how critical the imagery of water is to the story of God's redemption. Uh, the, the scriptures begin with water, Genesis 1, verse 2, right away, and then if we were to jump to Revelation chapter 22, the end of the the last chapter of the scriptures we see that that theme brought to its completion in revelation 22 verse 17 says and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires to take the water of life come take it without a price the bible begins and it ends with this theme of the significance of water, the imagery of water. And so I want you to recognize right away that this language isn't accidental, right? God, God's building something. He's introducing critical themes of his redemption right away in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The other theme that is important is the imagery of light and darkness. We see it in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, uh, darkness being over the, the, uh, the, the world, essentially in darkness. Of course, we're familiar enough with the rest of Scripture to realize that, that God's interest in Genesis 1, with themes of darkness and light being introduced right away, are not just scientific. These are, these are not just uh, scientific elements that God is, is putting in place. Uh, these are redemptive s- salvation themes, right? Uh, because we're going we're to see light and darkness front and center throughout the scriptures. And again, predictably, he carries this all the way through to the end. So we begin with this discussion of darkness and God bringing light into darkness. And he's going to carry that all the way through to the end. Revelation 21 speaks of God's recreative work at the end of all things. And listen to what the scriptures say. It says, And the city, that new Jerusalem, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The whole account of God's story of redemption begins with these metaphors that are thrown out to us in Genesis 1.1 1, 1, and 1, two. Water. Darkness, light, God's doing something not just scientific but theological here. It's an important recognition to make. God takes this darkness, formless, empty earth, and over the course of six work days, he turns it into a beautiful, sufficient home for the pinnacle of his creation, his image Bearers, And we see, particularly on days one through three of creation, how God specifically brings order and form to his creation. I want to look briefly at each of those first three days. Day one, we find in verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, admittedly, this gets a little confusing because he doesn't actually create the sun and the moon until day four, right? So we have something interesting going on here, and I think we can recognize that we aren't supposed to understand this purely from a scientific perspective, that God's doing something else here. What we know is that God spoke, and there was light, and God called the light day. And the darkness night so god is revealing himself to us as the creator the originator of all things the one who brings order into chaos the one who is overall who is the source of even light and darkness and in verse 4 we see that this creative work what god had created so far was good and scripture says there was evening And there was morning the first day. Now allow me uh, to take just a minute to discuss that word day as it appears many times in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What we see is that right away, uh, right out of the gate here, there are several uses of the word day, several ways that the word day is understood. We might look at verse 5. It says, God called the light day. What does that mean? Daytime, right? Not denoting a period of time, but, but setting it apart from night. And then we continue in the verse. At the end of the verse, we find the second use. And there was evening and morning the first day. So there we have that, that second use. Not speaking of day as in daytime, but as in day, day as in an entity of time the individual division of time. And then there's a third use that we find in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, uh, and that's uh, found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So a a different, speaking of an era, right? A a long period of time, perhaps. But I want you to hear this a little bit, well, well, first of all, uh, I want you to hear this translation. You may have noticed uh, verse, chapter 2 verse 4, if you read it in the NIV, it didn't use the word day. Uh, it, it sort of summarized that. Uh, but in most of our translations, it includes that word day. The day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Uh, and so we have three uh, clearly different uses. of the sa- It's the same Hebrew word in, in every instance. Three clearly different uses Uh, just right away in the opening two chapters, first 35 or so verses of the scriptures. Uh, I think I can illustrate this with three sentences that we might use in our modern context. Uh, So that next slide, three sentences. I prefer day over night. Today is going to be a good day. And back in my day. Right? So three different ways we might use the same word. And this is important to recognize. It gives us some humility as we approach Genesis chapter 1 and recognize that even the word day, which people, uh, people get really serious about using that word literally, is used three different ways, uh, even in the first 35 verses of the scriptures. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you are familiar with Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his commentary on Genesis chapters 1 through 3, says that he said, When I discuss the days of creation, it's no concern to me the actual length of those days. Uh, And so, for my purposes today, I will will follow uh, Bonhoeffer's wisdom that that is uh, not the point of our text today. Uh, The point is that God is bringing order and form to his creation that was previously formless and void and we see this order in the second day when god creates the atmosphere and the sky as distinct from the waters of the earth and that third day when god forms land masses and features with the purpose of them producing life and then commands plants to to sprout so that life may be sustained god is doing something specific here. He's building toward something. He's bringing order and form. He's setting the stage for what is next. So what do we see next? Second, God fills the earth. Verse 14, day four of creation, God creates the sun and the moon. It's argued by some that this is the first 24-hour day in the first week of creation, when the sun and moon are there to govern, as verse 16 says, and day five, verse 20, God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. Let the birds fly in the sky. I want you to notice something that you might not notice when you just read through this. And that's the mirroring that's happening. Day one, what did God do? He spoke light into existence. Day four, what did God do? He created the sun and the moon. Day two, what did God do? He created the atmosphere, the sky is distinct from the oceans and the earth. And, and, and what did he do on day five? So one, one and four, two. Now what does he do in day five? He, he fills the sky and the seas, birds and fish. Day three. What does God create? He creates dry land and causes plants to sprout up. In day six, what does He do? He fills that dry land with, with land dwelling creatures, with livestock, and then ultimately with humanity. The, the filling that, uh, the, the mirroring that we see here is not accidental. It's in keeping with the statement of, of verse two that God fills that which is empty and and so we see this mirroring that takes place between days 1 2 and 3 and 4 5 and 6 of creation god is working very intentionally god brings order and form to his creation he fills the earth and third god declares that his creation is good god has taken the formless empty earth and transformed it into something that's ready for its purpose all of this earthly creation is put in place and and throughout God has declared it good and on day six God says let us make mankind in our image so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and listen to verse 28 it says and God blessed them and then jump down to verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was not just good, it was very good. God looks at his creation, he observes all that he has done, and he declares it is very good. God places his, his blessing, his seal of approval upon his creative masterpiece, but he's not done blessing. And so we see forth, God blesses and establishes a day of rest for his creation. Of course, God, we covered this in previous weeks, God didn't need to rest. That would be blasphemy, say that God would get tired, that God would be wore out. God didn't need to rest he doesn't grow tired he doesn't need recharging he doesn't have to rewind after a long day like you and i do what what, what god has done is reveal in his creative work in this way so as to establish a rhythm a norm for his people for his creation god has designed his people he's designed us to work and to live in a rhythm of of work rest and worship god has given the gift that will be talked about in chapters to come, the gift of the Sabbath. You could read in Hebrews chapter 4, if you're a note taker, jot down Hebrews chapter 4 and spend some time there as as the writer of Hebrews talks to us about what it means to enter Sabbath rest. When we observe the Sabbath, when we observe this seventh day or for uh, what, what for us has become the first day, We are confessing something. We are declaring something. We are confessing, we are declaring, we are living out our belief that God is the creator, that God is Lord over all. When when we refuse to rest, when we refuse to Sabbath, when we refuse to order our lives in the way that God has designed us to, we are declaring that we are Lord. That we are on the throne. That we know better than God. Does that sound familiar? We're going to talk about that in a a couple weeks. Rebellion, sin, murder, sickness, hard labor, even death would come to define this very good creation. Think about the disparity. Those whom God has created for relationship with him would sever that relationship and insist on their own way insist on doing their own thing making their own decisions the sabbath rest of day 7 that god has ordained from creation is lost while humans might to some degree rest from their labor it would be it is impossible for us to truly rest it's sort of like a train has derailed and try as hard as we might we can't pull that train back on the tracks the tracks have been destroyed the cars are mangled nothing is right and, and we feel and we live in that, that that context in that disparity between what god has designed and our reality every day god did not design his world to be like this he didn't design his world To be what you and I experience every day. The United States saw 20,000 murders last year. That's not what God designed. God didn't design a world in which one out of six American women would experience a rape in their lifetimes. That's not what God has designed. God didn't create the world in such a way that we would have almost a half million foster children in the foster care system today in our country. That's not sabbath rest that's not living out of that seventh day like god has designed it. everything is broken i'm reminded of this so often so profoundly at every funeral that i'm a part of that's the reason I, i've told you from the pulpit i've wrote about it i've encouraged you to attend those funerals enter into time of mourning, not not only because it's a good human thing to do, to to offer your presence as consolation to hurting people, but, but perhaps more importantly at a funeral, you're thrust into the midst of this very tension of our text today. Standing over a hole in the ground in a prairie cemetery is... Not very good. It's not the way that God made this to work. It's not right. It's not the rhythm that he designed. And even more so, and hopefully so, confidently so, it's not the way things will always be. But today we know nothing other than this disparity this tension this brokenness this image of everything being very good and then the felt reality that nothing is very good that's the human existence and the question is where do we go what is what is the answer I think the answer is perhaps most clearly in the New Testament's version of the creation account. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that the New Testament sort of restates Genesis 1 for us in John chapter 1. Listen to what John chapter 1 says. It begins the same in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. Hear those themes? And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, uh, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, creation is all about Jesus. When we hear of day one of creation, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, we're not supposed to merely think about rays of sunshine. We're supposed to think about the one who would come as God's answer to darkness. The one who would come to bring order and fullness to a world of wasteland and emptiness. And that true light, that light of the world, came to fix the brokenness of the creation that we had made. To redeem that which was destroyed. He came that we might have the opportunity to be restored to that place of relationship with God, that we might become children of God. Jesus came to bring back the very good. To redeem and restore God's creation. And that's, that's the wild part about the creation story. That the one through whom all things were created, took on flesh, lived among us, went to the cross for my rebellion, for my sin, for my brokenness, for my destruction of God's good creation. And he gives us today his holy body and blood. That doesn't make sense to me. So as we look forward and we see These elements of the Lord's Supper, we we don't just see bread and and grape juice. We see the light of the world. We see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We behold God made flesh to restore all things, to bring back that very good. Good. Because of what Jesus has done for us because the light came into the world that we might become children of God that the promise of this meal of grace today is that by faith God looks at you and he looks at, at me and he says it's very good that's the promise for all who believe it's the assurance that that is ours because of this meal of grace today, because of what Christ has done, not because of what you could do, not because of what you could earn. The only way for things to be very good is in the one who declared it in the first place to declare it again. When Jesus died. was raised again he declared all who believe are very good let's pray lord we thank you that we can read genesis and so clearly see jesus that these themes right out of the gate themes of water pointing us to the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. These themes of darkness and light remind us of the light of all mankind, the light of the world who came that we might have life. Lord, I pray that as we come to the Lord's table today that we may examine our hearts, we may confess our sin and Lord, you know there is so much of that. That we may be assured that all that your Son accomplished is for us. That we may know objectively today, because your word has declared it to be true, that it is very good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.